and welcome to the Doxology Podcast. I am Lucas Stock. And I'm Jens Nelson. This is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Join us as we discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life, striving for unity amongst our diversity as members of the Church of Christ, not the denomination, but the body of Christ called out and joined to him by faith and baptism. There you go. So today is an extremely exciting day. I don't want to oversell it, but I don't know how you could oversell anything related to this podcast, which is just the most perfect piece of media (laughs) ever created. But um, we are bringing back Christians of history. Woo! Um, So today is a Tuesday, but we decided because we wanted to uh, bring back Christians of history, we're going to bring it back with a bang. So we're doing a, a jam-packed, triple-threat Christians of history, which we'll get into in a little bit. But before we get into today's biographies of the Christians of history we're going to be talking about, we wanted to sort of announce and explain what's happening with Christians of history, creeds and confessions, the schedule, what you can kind of expect programming-wise from us moving forward. So I don't know, Jens, if you want to kind of just explain our thought process and what we're going to be doing. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think we've said more than more times than I can count that we, we, we want your feedback. We want your opinions. We want your input. And it, we've just heard on social media and a couple of different avenues that people missed Christians of history. Uh, I tweeted a few weeks ago saying that Carl Bart, uh, finally became our most downloaded episode, which I believe is still true to this day. So it goes Bart, our very first episode, which was like our introduction and then J.I. Packer. Um, so two Christians of history in the top three, um, and, and people have just expressed a, uh, a desire for more. Um, it's not that people dislike creeds and confessions, but there's, there's something special, I guess, about, about Christians of history. So, uh, I think it's been on pause since October because in, in our, um, uh, our heretic month, we, we had some heretics of history and then in November, I believe, we just went straight into doing the creeds and confessions. So it's been a few months. Uh, people have missed it. And so we thought we would bring it back. And so, um, like Lucas said, this is a special Christians of history. This is one where we thought it'd be fun to, to bring it back with a bang, uh, cover three really big Christians from church history. And then going forward, our Friday episodes will be like they used to be. So no longer will we have uh, creeds and confessions, but we will have the Christians of history segment, uh, roughly 15 to 20 minute episodes in length, uh, covering, you know, like we said, Christians from church history. Uh, if you're if you're newer to the podcast and if you haven't gone back to listen, uh, really the genesis of this segment of the podcast was actually something that I started um, when I was a youth pastor. Uh, so back back in those days, <laughs> you know, just a couple of years ago, um, I wanted a way to introduce people to some of the major people, uh, the major characters from, from church history uh, to do so in an interesting way uh, because I think that there's something that we can learn from those who have come before us. Uh, we, we stand on these people's shoulders. I mean, especially the, day, the people that we're covering today, the Cappadocian Fathers, um, a lot of the work that they did was instrumental, groundbreaking, you might say, and, and, and vastly um, important into the, the realm of 
uh, the Trinity and their relations, and, and we'll, we'll get into more of that. But um, there's a lot that we can learn both positively and negatively. So we, we can see like what were the good things that we ought to emulate in our own lives, as well as some of the not so good things that we can learn from. So, you know, we've already covered men like Jonathan Edwards and Martin Luther. And we talked about how Edwards owned slaves and Luther was viciously anti-Semitic in, in some of his life. And so like, what do you do with some of those darker, um, you know, more messy areas of these heroes uh, how do we how do we think about that? How do we respond to it? Um, and so for for me, I mean, when we had done the, these Christians of history, there there was a lot to learn. You know, we, we we've covered people like um, Lemuel Haynes, learning about the the first African American preacher in the states, and um, there's just been some really cool stories. And so we thought it'd be a good idea to to bring it back, and we're both really excited about it. We hope that you. The listeners, uh, we hope that you guys are excited about it. And to to kick to kick off, like we mentioned for now for the third time, we're starting with the Cappadocian Fathers on its own. Um, but over the next maybe like five to six weeks, what we're going to do is um, I'm going to cover a Baptist and Lucas is going to cover an Anglican. So we're going to alternate because that's how we do Christians of History. I basically like one week we'll do one and then the next week Lucas and the next week me, the next week Lucas. So um, this week I'll be talking about a Baptist from church history. Next week Lucas will talk about an Anglican. And we just thought it'd be kind of fun to cover some of the the big names um, in our denominations, in, in, in the traditions that we find ourselves in to uh, get a better understanding of, you know, how did Baptists become a thing? How did Anglicans become a thing? Who um, who are the big movers and shakers, so to speak? So um, is there anything else that you wanted to add here, Lucas, before we jump in? Um, I think that, that pretty much sums it up. Just um, a reminder that creeds and confessions is not being put down. It's just being put on hold. Um, and we hope to come back to it because we think it is also another way to engage with Christian and church history and learn and grow in our own walks. Um, but it, you know, basically like we, I think we joked the other day, like if we could have it our way, we would do both Christians of history and creeds and confessions, but we just don't really have the time right now for something like that. And I don't know if you guys have the stomach to hear our voices three times <laughs> a week instead of twice a week, but, um, that will, you know, like maybe if we have a busy week and, you know, we're not able to prepare a Christians of history as well as we want to, we might bring back, you know, continue with the Augsburg or, or bring back another confession or maybe do some kind of, you know, creeds or confession themed Tuesday episode or something like that. But um, obviously, we'd love to hear your feedback on this change. And before we waste any more of your time, um, we will continue on or I guess start off with the return of Christians of history. Um, and then we'll, you know, move forward Friday to Friday and, and kind of get back into our old rhythm, which like you said, it's been, it's been quite a while since we were in this, um, you know, what had become our pattern. Uh, so I'm, I'm really excited to get back into it. I know I, I probably learned more from Christ, from doing and listening to the Christians of history episodes than most of the other episodes we did hmm. because a lot of people, especially that you were choosing, um, were just people I had never heard of or had never heard anything about outside of their name. And it was a really great opportunity to dive into um, not just details about people that we're really familiar with, but also 
histories and biographies of people that we're not really familiar with, but who are our forefathers and mothers in the faith. So I'm really excited. I know you're really excited. And um, I think that talking about the Cappadocian fathers is definitely, I don't know, I think it's the best way to kind of get back into it. Agreed. So let's let's get started. Let's Let's dive into this return of Christians of history. Last thing I'll say, I'm pretty sure Karl Barth was actually the last Christians of history that we've actually done because we went, he was at the very beginning of October and then we did the heretics and then we exited out of it. So our most listened to episode is actually our most recent version of this series. So I'm, I hope (laughs) you guys enjoy it. I hope it continues to grow. But, um, so to jump in, uh, as Lucas said, we're talking about the Cappadocian fathers. Um, so this th- this is three men who uh, lived in the 300s AD, so uh, not too far removed from the apostles, and certainly not very far removed from Nicaea. Uh, if if memory serves me well, wasn't Nicaea in like 325 um, or, yep. or thereabouts? And uh, Basil, Basil, Basil. I feel like you could say it both ways. I've heard it both ways. Um, but but Basil the Great uh, was born in 330, and he lived until 379 A.D., so like right after the, the um, Council of Nicaea. Uh, and he, right, and then he died right before Constantinople. Okay. So he, so he kind of is, is filling the, almost bridging the gap between those two councils, which if, I don't know, you know, we've mentioned this before, but if you remember, the, the Nicene Creed as we have it today is really the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. It's really right. the result of both of those councils from the 4th century. Um, and that's kind of, you know, all three of them really serve as this construction between these two monumental moments in theological development and right. church history, Yeah, as we'll see. He's like the buffer. Uh, but he eventually, and this is just a brief background summary sketch before we go deeper, but he eventually became the bis- uh, the bishop of Caesarea. Uh, Basil had a younger brother named Gregory, um, often known as Gregory of Nyssa. He was born in 335 and lived until 395 AD. Um, he was the bishop of, Nice- uh, of Nyssa which makes sense because of his name. Um, and they had a close friend who was also named Gregory, uh, Gregory of Nazianzus or Gre- uh, Gregory of Nazianzin. It's such a mouthful. I don't know. We might just say Ginaz. Um, but he was born in 329 and he lived until about 389 AD. Uh, he eventually became the patriarch of Can- Constantinople. So uh, Basil and Gregory were, were raised in a, a Christian uh, aristocratic family in Cappadocia and they were heavily influenced in their Christian faith and their Christian practice actually by their older sister uh, Macrina. Macrina. Um, while we do not have very many details of their early life it is it is evident from letters from autobiographical notes that uh, Macrina at least was a devoted Christian uh, perhaps even committed to, to celibacy and some ascetic practices um, Really, oh, she, most definitely. She she yeah. was a nun. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so she I mean she was really their primary spiritual guide for for the rest of the family. Uh we don't again, we don't know much about mom and dad, but um at least her older sister was pretty influential in in helping them come to an understanding of faith, um and, and growing and maturing in their faith. Um and so uh Basil specifically 
received uh, an excellent education in Caesarea, Antioch, Can uh, Constantinople, and Athens. Um, so all the major cities of the old world. I mean, those are all cities that are biblical, um, but also just major in, in human history. Uh, but he returned home to Caesarea where um, after some personal tragedies, he himself adopted ascetic lifestyle practices. He even founded a monastery uh, where he encouraged other monks to uh, basically dedicate themselves to work, prayer, Bible reading, and good works. Uh, so eventually, Basil joined with the Bishop of Caesarea in his struggle against Arianism. So if you recall, we already have mentioned uh, the Council of um, Nicaea um, dealing with Arianism. And so this is still going on. This is still a struggle um, and when this bishop passed away, Basil was selected to to be the new bishop of Caesarea, as we said in the intro. So uh, that was basically his his role, his job. Um, his his younger brother Gregory of Nyssa was uh, pretty well um, informed and educated with philosophy, with medicine, with rhetoric. Uh, Gregory's writings lean towards Christian mysticism, which is something that's come up on this podcast a couple times. Uh, but in, in 372, Basil appointed Gregory bishop of a small town, Nyssa. Uh, but but <laughs> Gregory apparently was a pretty poor administrator. He really didn't have any desire for, for church politics. And he also had little interest in financial affairs, which shouldn't the pastor be that way? I mean, shouldn't like the leader of a church not? I mean, I, I don't know, maybe it was different back then. But some of those things just seem to be tangential, I guess. But uh, this gave rise to a charge of misappropriation of funds, and he was actually dismissed from his post and was even banished by the emperor named Valens. Uh, but later he was actually recalled by the emperor um, Gratian uh, in 378. So he, you know, maybe had a little bit of controversy in his life, had a little bit of, uh, you know, maybe some, some bad things happen, um, but was brought back into good graces. Um, and now the the other Gregory, so we've already talked about Gregory of Nyssa, now the friend of Basil and eventually Gregory as well. Um, Gregory of Nazianzus was born also to a Christian family. Uh, he actually met Basil as they were students um, and later joined him in adopting the monastic life. Um, like the other Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nazianzus preferred uh, a more quiet, contemplative life as opposed to the, the conflicts and the controversies of church affairs. Um, he appointed was appointed to several ecclesiastical posts, um, actually always against his will and inclination, uh, but he eventually became the preacher of a small church in Constantinople in 379, uh, which was actually the year of Basil's death. Uh, really, Gregory was most gifted in oration, so in like public speaking and uh, in, in Constantinople, he delivered five speeches that were so powerful that they actually helped turn the tide of theological thought in the area of Arianism to orthodoxy, which uh, Lucas is holding and shaking a book in front of me. So I want to hear what he has to say. They're, they were also so powerful that I am holding a copy of them right now. Um, the the uh, St. Vladimir's popular patristic series, uh, number 23 on God and Christ, is these five theological orations um as well as two letters that he wrote to uh, a priest uh but it uh the like it's kind of it's crazy to me to like think about this especially like having read these in like book form 
to think about them being sermons mm. uh, is is crazy. We'll, we'll get into uh, shortly. We'll get into the the theological work and also the legacy of the Cappadocian Fathers. But like this book is definitely a major part of that, um, and is like just it, it's just it's so significant uh, that it's accessible and cheap and still published to this day, which, which I just think that's know, insane <laughs> shows, you, you know, like how many sermons are published, you know, 1700 years later, probably not that many. No, I mean, they have to be substantial <laughs> uh, for sure. You're not just getting John Smith's or whoever's <laughs> sermons. You're getting the big ones. Um, yeah. But anyway, I just, it's just, just a fun little thing I wanted to, to yeah. point out. <laughs> well, it, yeah, it is. It is crazy. And and as as I read about these three men, and as I delved a little bit deeper into their lives than I ever really had before, uh, I was struck by, um, on the one hand, some of their obscurity, um, just being from smallish towns, pretty humble backgrounds, uh, but the ways in which they worked and moved, the things that they cared about, the um, their adherence to, and their love of orthodoxy. I mean, it. it it's what has allowed these books and their works to continue even to this day. I mean, I have a couple books on my shelf uh, by, by Basil and um, a couple others by um, uh, Greg, uh, by G Naz as well. Um, so it's, it is pretty incredible to think that these men who lived in the three hundreds, you know, around the time of Augustine. And even now we have, you know, Augustine's works too. Um, but it, it is pretty cool to, to be able to go to your bookshelf and to, to see, um, you know, like Joel Beakey or um, trying to think of who's near Basil on my shelf because I have it alphabetical. But like just mm. to, to be like a modern day pastor or theologian, to go to a bookstore and to see these men next to your name or something like it's it, it's probably extremely humbling um, and extremely sobering. But uh, the fact that these men and their works survive to this day are one, a testament to the power of. Um, the influence, the magnitude that they that they had then, but as that that they continue to have the importance that like how relevant they remain today. Um, these aren't this isn't just archaic theology for for academic people in institutions, you know, in, like like Bible colleges and seminaries. Um, but this is really, I mean, these were delivered to the people, to the common people, to people who um, had the threat of heresy um, pressing in and wanted to and these these men wanted to see um true christian biblical orthodoxy being established and declared and so um you know the 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 brief biographical sketches are important i mean we we, we can highlight the good things that they've done some of the misgivings some of the um, not so good things and and it it really depends you know episode to episode person to person um but i think we can start transitioning into some of the legacy, some of the important theological contributions that these people have made uh, because they, they are, as we're saying, significant. So is there anything that you want to say right off the bat, Lucas? Yeah, I think if, if you were going to sort of summarize at, at the most basic level, like what the Cappadocians contributed to Christian theology and what their importance is, what their, benefit is to us in terms of reading and appropriating their work today it's it would you know the shortest summary would be the trinity and you've mentioned um a couple times even in in 
going over their lives, the importance of their respective conflicts with Arianism, which had already been condemned by the time they were born, but did not, you know, as I mean, that doesn't mean it goes away. And throughout the fourth century, Arianism was at times even, I think, a majority of the church. And it was certainly not like a done deal, even after the life of Athanasius and the Council of Nicaea, that Arianism was going to be defeated in terms of theological discourse and and the official teaching of the church. Um, some of the emperors were Arians and and you know used that to to kind of put you. I mean I mean use their their power to sort of uh, push. Arianism forward, and um, this is really the background that their work and ministries took place against, is this looming threat of Arianism and a commitment and a desire uh, on their part to push back against that by not only professing and putting forward Nicene Orthodoxy, but continuing the work that Nicaea had started and that figures like Athanasius had begun and developing what would become Nicene Orthodoxy into a theological system um, and a way of doing theology and explaining and articulating the truths that uh, Scripture and the Church had taught um, since the beginning. And the importance of what the Cappadocian fathers did for Trinitarian theology would probably be maybe not impossible, but close to impossible to overstate. Particularly in the East, um, the categories and the ways of thinking that, that they developed and put forward and refined really are, are certainly for many centuries following their their deaths but but even to this day are the norm and the foundation for what the church has declared and what the church has said and believed and confessed about the trinity so with that sort of being uh somewhat of a summary um there are a few important like sort of milestones that i think are worth worth noting um, so, so one would be the first one, I guess, would be uh, Basil's work against the the Arians. So he was specifically um, dealing with. Let me see if I can pronounce this <laughs> correctly. But he was specifically dealing with a certain um, strand of Arianism that I believe is pronounced Eunomianism. I think Eunomius was the um, uh, sort of the originator. Uh, of that movement. And so he, Basil, was sort of, you know, he was the oldest. He was, he was sort of the leader of, of, of the group, if, you, if we can, you know, sort of use that uh, way of speaking. And he kind of kicked off their, their uh, I don't know, their corpus, I guess you could say. Um, and this is where debates and explanations and, um, like I said, developments around terms that we've used before, like usia, hypostasis, substance, person, nature, these kinds of terms 
uh, which had come up before, like like we, we've pointed out in the past at Nicaea is where the term homoousios is used in the creed to describe the relation of the father and the son, that they are of the same substance. Um, so th- these aren't new terms that are, t- you know, first of all, they're not new terms, you know, at all. They're, they're have a long history and root in, in Greek philosophy and, and, and systems of thought going back, you know, centuries before the church, but they're also not new to the Cappadocians in a theological sense. But what the Cappadocians are able to do, starting with Basil, is really expand, refine, and um, develop the theological vocabulary with things like nature, substance, person. And this serves the purpose of articulating the inner relations of the different members of the Trinity. Because remember, the whole controversy with Arianism is the father being superior to the son, the son being subordinate to the father, questions about what does it mean to be begotten, those kinds of things. And these are the questions that need to be answered if you're going to maintain what we call Nicene Trinitarianism and and what became the church's orthodoxy and, and is you know, rightfully, the church's orthodoxy, um, as is what scripture clearly teaches. Um, and this is, this is continued in the work of the two Gregories, um, and it's also continued in other controversies. So after Arian is, uh, uh, sorry, after Arianism, um, there are also people who maybe they'll, they, they say, okay, that's fine, the son and the father homoousios, they're equal, co-eternal, that's fine. But the spirit is subordinate to them. And so it's almost like just, you know, Arianism 2, the the spiriting, I don't know. But, um, and so what's important in the work of the Cappadocians, we see it in the beginning of Basil, we especially see it in the work of um, Gregory of Nazianzus, Nanzianzus's uh, on God and Christ, those five theological orations that we just referenced as sort of the culmination of this. The last two, I believe, of those five sermons are putting forward a defense of the, the full divinity um, of the Spirit. And we see this most, you know, most fully in the Council of Constantinople, which Gregory of Nazianzus uh was, you know, he, he was instrumental in and he was a part of. Um, that's where that third article of the Nicene Creed on the spirit is added and expanded. Um, in, in the original Nicene Creed, there's just one line, I believe, in the Holy Spirit. There, there's nothing else. Um, so that that's why we say it's it's the, you know, Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. It's, it's really the result of both councils, um, which is a test, you know, a, a bit of a, like, symbol, I think, of how important the work of the Cappadocians was, is we, we can see very concretely the way that they helped to shape the language um, and the, the pattern of theology um, through the contributions that they made to what would become, you know, the final form of the, of, of the creed. Um, and the, these questions about about person and nature and substance and equality and all these kinds of things are really 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 important and it they're they're sort of 
among the most important things in the Cappadocians' work, um, but they're not the only important things. Um, there are some other themes that I think are really, really important and that are really helpful. And the, the other one that I want to like take some time to to highlight is is the idea of of the unknowability of God. Um, is something that we see in all three of them, um, especially, ob- especially uh, clearly in um, the the five theological orations of of Gregory of Nazianzus. Um, here's a, just a, just a brief quote: uh, "No one has yet discovered, or ever shall discover, what God is in His nature and essence." Um, and the idea, this idea, plays a really big role in what would go on to be, you know, stemming from the work of the Cappadocians, a, a really uh, foundational and typical way of doing theology and approach to theology. Again, particularly in the East, um, one term for this is apophatic theology, which is where you're based, you're, you're, you, the way you speak about God is you speak about things he is not. He is infinite. He is um, not mortal. He's immortal. He is, um, you know, invisible, incorporeal. We're, we're saying, by saying that God is not visible, we're not actually saying something about God. We're saying, we're, we're, we're delimiting what he's not. But that's not a positive statement about who he is, or more specifically, what he is. Um, and this is a major theme, um, especially in Gregory but also in, in the other Gregory and in Basil, is God's otherness, um, you know, this divine darkness of, of this cloud of unknowing is important because God is other than us, you know, and that's important for the incarnation. That's important for understanding and explaining the Trinity and the relations is it's not a matter, th- you know, three in oneness <laughs> is not something that is exactly, uh, you know, self-evident in how that works itself out when we're, when we're speaking in, in purely physical or, and natural terms. Um, and it's just kind of interesting to think about how by maintaining the unknowability of God, you're really protecting what we are able to know about him. Because it, it's, it's almost like, a, like the way I would think about it is it's almost like just maintaining the right paradigm to put things in perspective in such a way that we're able to reflect fruitfully on what scripture teaches us. So it might seem on the surface to be like, oh, you're telling me I can't know God. Well, that doesn't sound like the Bible. That doesn't sound very helpful. So that means I'm just stuck in my sinfulness and I, I can never get to God. It's just me and, you know, what's around me. But really what we're, what we're doing when we talk about God's unknowability is reflecting on the nature of a divine being who does come to speak to us. You know, Gregory talks about um, Moses going up to Mount Sinai into the cloud of, of darkness. When, you know, when Moses goes to talk to God, he's engulfed in darkness. It's not light. Um, it, he's not able to know God. He, see, he doesn't see God face to face. He sees God's back. Um, Basil wrote, I believe it was Basil, wrote um, 
a life of Moses, where this is this is a, a, a continuing theme, is this this darkness, this unknowability, which separates us from God, um, which keeps us and God in our proper places, not saying God is so great he can never interact with us and we're hopeless, but but quite the opposite. You know, we know through the mystery of the incarnation that 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 unknowable distance is bridged by the work of God. But what's different is when we're doing theology, we can't bridge that that unknowable distance. We can't deduce our way to God's essence. God reveals himself to us. And so at this point, I've kind of left actual discussions of the writings of the Cappadocian fathers, but you can see how fundamental these questions are and how influential their answers and their way of doing theology is. I mean, there's a reason Basil is known as Basil the Great. There's a reason Gregory of Nazianzus receives the title Gregory the Theologian. Like, there's a reason that the liturgy of St. Basil the Great is still used (laughs) in some parts of the East. Um, Basil created monastic communities, and his rule was the standard monastic rule in the East, and I believe still is, not in the West, uh, where Benedictine monasticism was the norm. But um, not only are there reasons that they became so influential, but there are, you know, as a result of them being so influential, we can't ignore them. And also, we don't want to ignore them, because... um, what they did was was they they really continued building what had been started by figures like Athanasius um, to you, you know provide the church with language and tools of a robust Trinitarian theology that that actually does justice to the revelation of God that we have in Scripture as Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, and for me, that's what's kind of st- stuck, that, that's what sticks out the most about the Cappadocians is just how, you know, I haven't I haven't read extensively of the Cappadocians' work, um, and even still, I, you know, am deeply influenced and touched by them, just indirectly, um, which is not a substitute for getting to know them personally in their writings, but... It, it is it is just a fact <laughs> that um, to be an Orthodox Christian is to to be influenced by the Cappadocians in some way, um, and that's a good thing <laughs> uh, because um, we don't want to be running away from pro Nicene Trinitarianism. We want to be uh, growing deeper and deeper in our understanding of the Trinity, starting from the foundations that were really, really fleshed out by these three um, friends, ministers, bishops, brothers, uh, well, brothers in Christ and literal brothers. actual brothers, <laughs> um, and continues to be to be super important. So I don't know. Maybe I got a little too head in the clouds there. No, that was all But really I think, good. you know, like, like to, to me, I, I think if we're, if we're going to sort of like in our minds just, just like on like a like a matching section of a test, just Cappadocians, Trinity, you know, like th- that's really the, the, the meat of what they did um, and what they to this day offer through their work. Yeah. 
And that's one thing that I love about Christians of History. Like, every time we do one of these, it makes me want to dive deeper into their world and their works. I yeah. mean, you know, when we've done it in the past, it inspired me to read more Edwards, read more Calvin, read more um, Haynes and, and Augustine and so forth. And this makes me want to dive deeper into um, more of their works, which in a second, I think you and I should recommend um, some of their works that we've enjoyed. But before we do... Uh, I think we'll just sort of summarize, wrap up here. Um, it's 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 worth noting that all three of these Cappadocian fathers are considered saints by both the Eastern and the Western churches, um, so they're they're recognized pretty universally as as um, you know being significant and important. Um, and really, it, there's no better way to summarize their life than by saying that in the midst of ecclesial and political turmoil, so in in the midst of church and state. Um, issues, the Cappadocians produced the most rhetorically articulate, biblically rooted, and philosophically informed arguments for pro-Nicene understandings of the Trinity. That's probably one of their biggest, if not their most significant contribution. Um, they did so by drawing on and expanding Athanasius's um, arguments for the full divinity of the Son, and also by expanding those same arguments to defend the full divinity of the Spirit, as, as Lucas has already said. And, and those two things, um, whether you knew that or not, like, so when you think about the Trinity today, when you think about the relationship, the divinity uh, between the Father, the Son, and Spirit, I mean, you're, you are standing on the soil that these men treaded and, and really laid the framework for. Um, so the, the last thing that I think is worth noting, actually, is... This is just more an anecdotal than anything, but I thought it was really fascinating, and I'm curious if you've heard anything about this. But uh, the Cappadocians, so these three, three men, held a higher view of women than many of their contemporaries. Um, some scholars I, I read even suggest that uh, Macrina, um, so the, the older sister of, of Basil and Gregory uh, of Nyssa, that, was actually, that she was actually an equal in the group of you know these three major theologians. And some have suggested that she ought to be recognized as the fourth Cappadocian. I don't know if you've heard anything about that. I, I don't know enough about these guys to know whether that's true or false or not. But um, when I read that yesterday, I, I at least thought it was pretty interesting. Because I, I really don't know anything about her other than the very brief things I've said here. Has that yeah. come up? I mean, she she was incredibly, like, she was, so she was named after their grandmother, I believe, Macrina. So she's known as Macrina the Younger. And like I mentioned, she, like, we mentioned she was a nun she was extremely devout and played a really big influential role on the on basil and, and gregory of nyssa when they were kids in terms of bringing them up in the faith um so th i mean there's 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 no denying her influence both in her own right as well as indirectly through um basil and, and gregory um it is interesting i don't know i haven't heard anything any, I, I've like like I, it's not like I've researched or or spent time or taken classes on these kinds of subjects, so I don't I don't know about like fourth Cappadocian or, mm. or you know whatever. It is interesting. Basil doesn't, I believe I I, I read in prep for this. Um, Basil doesn't mention like Macrina doesn't appear in any of his writings. So like if we only had Basil, we wouldn't even know he had a sister. Right. Um. So I don't know. I I don't know what you do with that if you're saying that she was as prolific or involved as the three of them just seems yeah. 
less likely, but um, to... Well, maybe maybe we have another Christians of history to add. Macarena yeah, the Younger. Definitely. and definitely. Um, cool. Well, I mean, so... she, yeah, I think that there's... there's there, I mean, there's no denying her role in their development and um, also just the the example that, that she lives like um, in, in her own life of faith and, and commitment is, is uh, it's, it's, it's worth remembering in its own right. And it's, it's quite an interesting uh, thing to think about such a like powerful family, I guess, not, yeah, not in like, the, the normal, not like power in like the, the traditional sense, but just like um, to have three kids go on to be so, <laughs> deeply significant uh probably doesn't happen too much in history but um, well that's that's actually a really good point and maybe that's the best way to wrap this up um to to bring it home to you know maybe we've talked about a lot of heady things things that are sort of up in the theological clouds so to speak uh to sort of bring this down to earth um i think this just goes to show what faithfulness what devotion to god and to his word can do Um, i mean i'm sure that macrina had no aspirations in helping raise two of the most significant theologians to walk the face of the earth. Um, but that's, that's how God used her to, um, to help these two young men grow and mature in their faith. Um, so for you, maybe you're a weary Christian. Maybe you're a, um, maybe you're feeling downtrodden. Maybe you feel insignificant. Maybe you just don't know what your life holds. Um, it's, it's worth, I'm not, I'm not saying that you're going to become the next Basil or, or something like that, but, um, it's at least worth noting and highlighting the, um, the crazy things that we cannot foresee happening in our life when we are yielded, um, to scripture, to orthodoxy, to, to being faithful to our Lord. So, um, as we, as we exit this episode, man, what, uh, what, what works of these three men do you want to recommend if someone were wanting to read something by Basil or one of the two Gregories, what, what, what maybe one or two stand out to you? Um, yeah, I'm going to say on God in Christ by Nazianzus. Um, the in particular, the, what is, what is called, uh, the first theological oration, which is his, I guess, 27th oration, an introductory sermon against the Eunomians those Arians that we mentioned, and then also the fifth one in here, which is number 31, um, is, is uh, which they title uh, On the Holy Spirit, uh, is there's there's a lot. It's, 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 it's a little dense, um, but not so much so that it's, you know, unprofitable to read. <laughs> uh, and... Especially his, the way he approaches the Holy Spirit's full divinity and personhood and equality um, is really, I think, valuable. It's really interesting um, and and definitely worth worth a read. And like I said, this is a, one of the popular patristics from St. Vladimir Seminary Press. So that's on, uh, you know, they call it On God and Christ. Um, yeah. by St. Gregory of Nazianzus. So that's that's the one I would I would say go ahead and pick up. Um, it's definitely, definitely worth the time. Cool. Yeah, I would say before I recommend mine, any of the works that St. Vladimir's Seminary Press has put out in their popular patristic series is worth 
checking out. I mean, it's it's very readable, even if it is dense and, and heady theologically. Um, to be able to read these works in English is a tremendous blessing and a gift. So all three of these men, I believe, have works on that popular patristic series. Um, but the one that I was going to recommend is actually one of them. It's, it's volume 38, but it's um, St. Basil's On Social Justice, which I recognize sounds a little, um, you know, maybe buzzwordy these days, but it's not necessarily what it means. Uh, I figured I would just quickly read the summary of the book because it, it summarizes it in a way that I couldn't. But um, basically, St. Basil's homilies on the subject of wealth and poverty, although delivered in the fourth century, remain utterly fresh and contemporary. Whether you possess great wealth or have modest means, at the heart of Basil's message stands the maxim, simplify your life so you have something to share with others. While some patristic texts uh, relate to obscure and highly philosophical questions, Basil's teaching on social issues are immediately understood and applicable. At a time when vast income disparity and overuse of limited environmental resources are becoming matters uh, of increasing concern, St. Basil's message is more relevant now than ever. Uh, this is really the only work that I've read um, all of in at least in the Cappadocian world here. Um, but I found it super, super good, super convicting. Uh, Basil talks a lot about um, a lot about wealth, of money, of, of giving, uh, of how, how we ought to even think about um, materials that we accrue in this life, which, you know, for me, somebody who loves books, somebody who loves records and, um, you know, collecting things, it, it's, it, you know, it caused me to stop and think for a while about why I, um, like and want those things and what are better ways that I could um, utilize my, my my finances, my gifts, my talents and so forth. So um, definitely worth checking out. So that's that's all I have to say. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Sweet. Well, without, I guess, any further things to say, we'll say thank you. Um, really, we, we love the feedback that you give us. We're glad that you guys have missed Christians of History and we're excited to have uh, brought it back. So um, we, we would love your suggestions for what episodes to do in the future, people that you'd want to learn more about. Um, if you'd like to connect with us and tell us, find us on Twitter and Instagram at Doxology Podcast. You can also email us at doxologypodcast at gmail.com. A uh, little sidebar, check your junk folder. Apparently our email goes to a lot of spam and junk for some reason. Um, so just go ahead and check it. See if you've missed anything from us. Uh, but really, we'd love to hear from you. So until next time, we'll see you. Peace. <laughs>